It's nice to meet over the internet like this, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it's always funky. Yeah, are you New York based? Is that correct? Yeah, I'm in New York. Yeah. Word. How do you like it over there? Been there a couple of years? Oh, uh, I've been here a number of years. Really? Yeah. I mean, that takes you back all the way to start because I've always wondered, like, uh, Love Tractor and all the REMB 52s. You guys always talk about New York, man. You guys just wanted to go play up there, right? Is that correct? Yeah. So we, you know, I mean, we. I've been here for twenty something. 25 years but really? then even before that with the band um you know we would have major stop-offs here and mm-hmm. stay here um and um so it was always kind of a second home yeah so um, it, it was more of a hub back then because like kind of speaking for athens bands now it's not really one of those places that people go play anymore kind of in my opinion yes i you know I don't know. Um, it, uh-huh. it was, you know, I mean, obviously back then it was, you know, there was no internet and there were no um, cell phones. So New York City was really fascinating because, uh, you know, it was very inexpensive to live here. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in order to, to learn what was going on and what was happening is you went out every night. Yeah. You went clubbing. <laughs> and, of course. Um, and so it, you know, had a, was an amazing culture. Uh-huh. And um, so the first thing a lot of us did when, you know, school, we got out of school and, or whatnot was to get our asses out of Athens and get to New York. Yeah. And, you know, even while we were in school, Love Tractor did, we did our first album when we were s- still in school. Uh-huh. You know, we would hop in cars and drive drive to new york for long weekends really um to play shows that's awesome man um yeah it was a lot of fun yeah was that was that the first destination you guys kind of reached out to after athens yep that's crazy to me it seems so wild because it's so like you know far in theory but like uh nowadays bands just go to like local college towns kind of it seems like yeah it was new there was it was new york washington dc um philly chicago boston um, you know, all the, it was big cities totally, and, um, because people really sort of migrated to those. It wasn't, and it was a little bit later that the college towns, sort of more mid eighties when the college towns really started, started to happen. And REM sort of opened up that Avenue, um, totally. whereas the B-52s sort of, um, opened up New York. The B-52s came, I mean, their first show was, uh, across from the taco stand in Athens. And then really? the show was at Max's Kansas city and CBGB's in New York. <laughs> wow. And they were an overnight sensation in New York city. And, um, they sort of opened it up for us, uh-huh. um, and pylon and REM. And so we would all, we would do long weekends and drive up and, um, because they're really, you know, the college town thing wasn't really, all the college towns in the South were still hillbilly. Mm. Like downtown Athens was, if, I mean, honest to God, on a Saturday night, you could go lie down in the middle of college and Clayton. <laughs> really? And not get hit by, it. you know, it was, it was desolate. It was desolate. <laughs> I can't even imagine that. It just seems so backwards from what I've come to know since moving here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. 
And you guys, I read in all these books like Cool Town, I don't know if you've read that one, and um, a few other Athens books, like that there just were no bands really, except for like fraternity bands or whatever, until you guys kind of started popping up in the late 70s, early 80s kind of thing, right? Don't you think? Yeah, there, there were, you know, there were cover bands. Yeah. So it was like your high school dance band. Uh-huh. And, um, and or really kind of really bad Southern rock <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. And so for us, and I say us, um, I always repeatedly say us, mm-hmm. um, meaning the art school, people that were in the art school at UGA at the time. Um, we were kind of a, a different breed than the rest of the university. The rest of the university was like it was a big football redneck school. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, maybe it still is. <laughs> um, and it's, I, you know, certainly much hipper now than it was, yeah. but it, it, you know, there was nothing. And then slowly, but surely, I mean, we would have parties and, you know, on, you know, these old houses on Meg street, on Cobb street, on Barber street, uh-huh. um, a lot of the big old houses there. And we would have major parties and be everyone from art school would yeah. come. And, um, you know, and so somebody would be spinning records and then somebody finally got the bright idea of like, Hey, let's, you know, pick up a guitar and create a band. And, and so we all started making, you know, creating bands to play these parties. And, to and our how- friends. I, you know, it was really, it, w- it wasn't like we were the ones creating the scene. It was really everyone else, the mm-hmm. audience that was creating the scene. Interesting. So like your friends kind of wanting you guys to play was kind of the, the way it happened? The, yeah. That's fascinating, man. Yeah, yeah. they were just as important as the bands. Totally. I mean, they participated in um, concepting a lot of the stuff that went on at the time, you know, these the coffee club the you know i mean you have to understand that athens was desolate it was everyone was in a fraternity or sorority Uh and there were very few clubs if any and um so we made our own fun yeah and that you know that was part of it and you know local artists would do all the posters or design your album covers or you know um, you know, people you were in school with. Mm-hmm. And so it's all very participatory. Brian Eno has a term for it, I believe, called scenism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's that a band doesn't really come, it that it's the scene itself is what is created. Um, and a band or something out of it is just sort of a symptom of it. Uh, I see. You said scenism, is that correct? Scenism. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I'm going to have to write that down. That's a good one. That yeah. makes a lot of sense too. Cause like the art school is not very big either. Is it, how many kids are you guys looking at back then? A hundred, 200? 150, huh? you know, wow. 150 maybe, you know, it was the old art school that's on Jackson street. Uh-huh. Now I think landscape architecture or something. Totally. You know, it's that white building. Yes. Yes. Of course. It's a really cool building. Yeah. So and you I, guys all knew each other. We, everyone knew, everyone <laughs> knew each other. Everyone was really close. I mean, everyone uh-huh. was slept together. There were uh-huh. roommates, 
you know, had classes together. And, you know, the schedule was such that we would have um, two, two studio classes, two two-hour studio classes, art, an art history class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was five hours that you were at the art school a day and then maybe one class out, you know, like sociology or something else out in the totally. university. So you really were, you spent your day at the art school. Totally. totally. And, and the professors that were there at the time were really amazing and um, really encouraged what we were doing musically um, because they saw it as an extension of conceptual art. Absolutely. And, and we approached it that way. Um, so uh, at, at the time, did you guys like, would somebody ask you guys, would you call yourselves like art rock or something like that? Or would you totally. just, yeah. Okay, cool. We can totally consider ourselves art rock. We, you know, we, I would say, especially love tractor and pylon, mm-hmm. um, um, I mean, uh, you know, we had no sense of wanting to be rock stars or have hit albums. We wanted to make music that um, sort of tickled our own fancy. Yeah, it was kind of that, a statement. Uh, it was a statement to us. We weren't trying to impress anybody except ourselves. Totally. Oh, so, you know, that's who we and our and and our, the only thing I would say that really went in tandem with it was. You had to be able to dance to it. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> you had to be able to dance to it. So mm-hmm. that's why, you know, Athens produced, at least in that time in my era, produced like the best drummers ever. Yes, totally. Athens. I could see that. Um, and so, you know, everyone was a dance band. Yeah, some really and good then, guitars too, man. Don't 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 right. downplay the guitars, man. That jangle. No, I'm not, Ricky. You know, people forget about like Ricky Wilson. Ricky mm-hmm. Wilson sort of changed it for everybody because he was so unique the way he played guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and Randy Buley, a lot of great guitar players. Um, but you know, everyone. It was a small group of us, and we were all buddies. We all shared equipment. We shared studios we had we all had a uh, studio space on jackson street that we shared all the bands or just a couple you guys or i'd say most side effects rem love tractor and pylon was a good practice above the grill um on the top floor curtis crow had a studio really and is this is like I, I believe they call it, do they call it Pylon Park or is that the house that everybody lived Pylon in? Pylon Park was 265 Barber Street. And that's where I, I lived with Sam C. Wright, uh-huh. Kit Swartz, who was a drummer and love tractor and was also in the side effects. And Michael and Curtis from Pylon lived upstairs in the house. Really? What was it? What was the, it like being there? You know, I assume you guys were kind of just engulfed in the whole art music thing. I mean, everybody yeah. in the house being that kind of vibe, right? Uh, totally. You know, I mean, and it was a huge play. It was a huge old house. It's been completely restored. Uh-huh. A great guy named Richard Owens lives there now. Um, but we had, you know, huge yard. It backed up to the president's yard, like the on Prince Avenue, the president of UGA's house backyard went that far back. 
really? down Barber Street, you know, and so it backed up to that. And we, there was a, it was like Pink Flamingos, the movie by John yeah. Waters. Um, there was like an old pink trailer behind the house uh-huh. that Michael from Pile Michael Husky, great photographer, uh-huh. um, great artist, great bass player, would have photo shows in the uh-huh. trailer. Really, we and you know we would have these amazing house parties at that house, and back in the back in the yard, you know, in the summertime and whatnot. With band, with all the bands playing, or just bands whatever. playing, yeah, oh. always with a band playing, always. Yeah. See, that's a, one of those things that's kind of been I hate to say killed off because I mean they still happen now and again, but pretty tapped in on the current scene, you know, and the house party thing just kind of doesn't fly anymore, you know, with the it'll get shut down, you know, so it's tough. Yeah, I, you know, maybe you have to move farther out in the country. I mean, maybe so. for it, but you know, there was no, uh, there was no music industry in Athens at the time, mm-hmm. and and no people were moving there to be in bands. And at a certain point, you know, we went off. We put out an album. I think we got off on tour, and we come back, and all of a sudden, you know, we run into kids that are moving to Athens to be in bands. Yeah, and it was quite different because, you know, the when I when I started school there, it was um, it, it sort of becomes blurry to me because when I started school in the band thing, it all kind of happened at the same time. But then there was a, a moment where it became national, and then people started coming into Athens. Um, Around when was that moment? Like 1982, 80, somewhere in there? I'd say like 83, 84. Okay. Um, um, you know, it became much more commercialized. And mm-hmm. uh, Did you, you know, guys realize that you were onto something kind of? Like, did the scene like kind of know that it was happening or was like just nobody aware just one day Athens is a music location that kids are showing up to? You know, Mike Mills and I were at a party. Um, Mike Mills, the bass player for Marianne. Um, and we were, we, some, I, you know, I don't know what the party was. I can't, there were so many insane parties mm-hmm. in Athens at the time. Insane, beyond <laughs> belief. And, you know, a lot of LSD. And, um, <laughs> the era. And uh, other things. Um, but, you know, we were sitting around and, I mean, we're at some party and we looked at each other and we said, we can't believe we're living through this that you know it's like hate ashbury in the 60s you know like it's all happening around us and um it kind of blew our minds yeah so completely unexpected you know what i mean to show up in athens you know you show up in what year 19 i showed up in 1977 i was a freshman um so from 77 to like i assume you graduated 81 ish 82 ish like just huge change in athens wouldn't you say Oh, huge change. Massive. You know, and I mean, when I, you know, when I arrived in 1977 is right when it started. Mm. 76, 77, right when it started. And so it was, and um, just going to art school, you were thrown, immediately thrown into the thick of it. Uh-huh. And, Perfect entry. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was like you're, if you were in art school, if you're at the UGA art school, you are automatically part of a club. Um, And trust me, you were part of that club because we all had to protect each other because the frat boys would chase (laughs) us down the street and try to beat us up. I'm not kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> really? Um, That's crazy. I, you know, I, I'm serious. And um, so, you know, I mean, we all got to know each other there. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Vanessa Briscoe, hey, from Pylon. I mean, you know, she and I used to sit, sit, sit on the floor in the hallways between classes and smoke cigarettes, you know, or, or you know, it's just the whole, you know, you know, Michael Stipe introduced me to Armstead Welford, who was ended up being the bass player in Love Tractor. You know, that's how tight knit it was. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, there are a lot of names I could roll off that you know you would know or people would know that are rock fans, mm-hmm. but um, but there are a lot of other people that were just as important to it all, um, like the people doing the posters and the Wuog people and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and just encouraging us aesthetically um, with, you know, you know, what they might might be into aesthetically was, you know, something that would turn us on to something and, mm-hmm. and carry over. You know, we would all, a bunch of us would leave. We finished school. Mm, a lot of us were late starters. I had a, interestingly enough, I, when I came for freshman orientation i had uh, an advisor named ronald coleman Mm -hmm. and he asked me he said are you a morning person or are you a night person and i i never really thought about it you know (laughs) getting up in the morning i said i guess i'm a night person he says okay and he he set me up where i never had a class that started before 1 1 p.m really (laughs) and so, um, which gave me, you know, all day, we would finish up about six with school, mm. you know, go eat, go do any work I needed to do, mm. and then go out and party all night. And get to sleep in every day. <laughs> and sleep in every day. Yeah. And, um, and I, when I tell you party every night, we partied every night. Michael Husky from Pylon had a... Um, answering machine on his telephone and that we call the party line and you would call it and you know because there was no Facebook there was no social media and you would call it and um, Michael would have the listing of every party that was going on in town that night really <laughs> and you know there's that b52 song party out of bounds where it's like mm-hmm. oh no not them that was us <laughs> really <laughs> you know we, we would go crash any party that was yeah. happening so you would call the number and the voicemail answer would be the list of parties is that what you mean yeah you know party <laughs> on hill street we don't know them um so and so we know on um, having a party on such such street no parties tonight but we're you know it's 25 cent beer night at the last resort yeah um, something like that and um that's hilarious we would go crash you know we would go crash you know these fraternity sorority parties uh-huh. and you know it would be like these people would you know they're like freaked out because we were the freaks coming in <laughs> really taking over and we would sort of go on mass to these things so that we we're protected and strength in numbers strength in numbers and the athens police didn't really care yeah. um it wasn't you know athens police and the university police was like if they pulled you over 
you know, for drunk driving, it was mm-hmm. a laugh. It was a joke. You, know? <laughs> really? you can always talk your way out of it. That's like, why I'm not going to jail. <laughs> don't work anymore i suppose <laughs> yeah i guess not but, but in this era I, I do hear some stories of like you know i guess it's the rem ones are the usually ones i hear but like them sort of playing some fraternity parties too did love tractor ever do that kind of thing because that's kind of seems to be the the bread and butter of bands now like if you want to be profitable at all or or kind of build a bigger audience is fraternity parties sorority parties kind of sort of, it's sort of ha- yeah it happened a little bit later for for, okay. you know i mean it, it's it, everything happened so fast uh-huh. um it, um that time seems condensed but it did sort of happen later uh where the fraternity sorority people became more accepting of it and realized oh. what was going on um but um yeah so we would play those but not but not not really later later on we would play some if we were back in town working on a record you know and then they wanted to pay the price mm-hmm. we would go play totally. just to, to you know practice new new material oh. um but you know what one of the interesting things that rem did was that you know like pylon love tractor B-52s, we were always just between Athens and New York, basically. Mm-hmm. And REM took a really different approach because, well, you know, they were much more accessible in the sense that they had this really great front man. Totally. And, you know, Michael's such a, you know, personality and such a great front man. And that they could go and play play a gig and play straight up rock and roll. You know, if the beer bottles started flying, they could mm-hmm. switch into, you know, just straight up rock, you know, straight yeah. up rock and roll. Absolutely. And so they branched out and started opening up all the college towns, uh-huh. you know, up through Chapel Hill, all the college towns in North Carolina, you know, Tennessee, and they moved out that way. And it really branched out and it was really genius on their part because it, it, it sort of helped sort of create this atmosphere of college rock yes became college rock and then it opened it up for us all to go and do that route as well um but they again they had the luck of like i said of 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 they could immediately turn back into a regular rock band if they had you know if the beer bottles started flying <laughs> the beer Whereas bottles. we didn't you know we gotcha. did pylon I mean, you know, I mean, we were all as arty as you could possibly get. That. Yes. And we didn't care. <laughs> and you guys are, I assume you're like seeing these bands, like, because I kind of think of B-52s is like a little bit earlier than the rest of them, which I suppose they are. But like, you're kind of taking notes from these other bands, right? Like you see R.E.M. start hitting the road and you guys start doing that. Or was it the same kind of time period? Do you know what I mean? It's the same time period. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, we were all, uh, well, B-52s first. B-52s happened, um, and they got signed immediately to Warner Brothers and moved to New York. And um, But they didn't forget their hometown. And so anytime we would come to New York, we were taken care of by the B-52s. And, <clears throat> and you have to understand at the time, the B-52s, I mean, you know, 
this is way before love shack (laughs) sort of you know you know big pop hits Mm -hmm. but they were this they were this considered this really kind of amazing art band and they were and it was really because of keith and ricky who wrote the music and ricky played uh, these his guitar playing was amazing he would play a four string and a five string guitar with with odd tunings yeah if you go listen to like their second album listen to a song like dirty back roads Uh and you'll hear what um, is that the one with Dance This Mess Around? Is that the, the yellow record? Is that correct? That's, the yellow record is the first one. The second one is the red one. Red one. Um, and, but listen to the music. Listen to what's happening in the music. And, you know, no one was doing references. They were doing, you know, Fred was actually rapping. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this is pre-rap. Very and, early. And the girls were referencing Yoko Ono. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who is a great artist. Absolutely. And um, um, and then, you know, borrowing from that sort of like girl group 60s thing and this amalgam of all of that. And they, you know, they had no intention of becoming a great rock band or anything like that. And it just, they went to New York and, you know, it blew Blondie and the Ramones and the Talking Heads and all those people away. It just blew them away. And they, I mean, it was just like they were immediately signed to Warner Brothers and then they moved to New York. And um, so when we would go to New York to play, they would always bring everybody out to see us. Really? Um, and we would end up staying with them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, everyone looked after everyone else. So it's still kind of the community thing. Like there was no kind of hard feelings like, like, Oh, they, they got a little, they got signed and they just left. There was nothing, none of that kind of, yeah. Totally understandable. Yeah. Oh, we're all best friends. That's awesome. Still. I mean, all the bands, we're all, you know, you know, the, you know, what bands are left, but you know, are the pieces of bands, you know, um, we're all dear, dear friends. We've known each other now for so long and, you know, went through so much together and, um, you know, we all really encouraged each other. Yeah. To, you know, we were like really happy when, when, you know, another band was really successful mm-hmm. and, um, because he, the other thing that was really important at the time was everybody wanted to sound different from each other. Totally. I can all, see that. Although when I go back and I listen to everyone's first album, I can hear each other, all of uh-huh. us influencing each other. A little jangle. <laughs> yeah, jangle. I don't know where that came from. Because, yeah. uh, you know, maybe from R.E.M. I mean, you know, because Peter's guitar playing had a little bit of jangle. But, you know, like, you know, when it came to like us and the B-52s and Pineline, I think there was a little more ang- angle than jangle. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it um to it but um you know it was it was very heady interesting times it was very interesting and you know any of the sort of crazy major acts that came through at the time we all got to hang out with um you know with neil young with Iggy pop um you know it, it was you know fascinating you know, that we got to experience all of that. And, um, 
and then when we would go on tour, you know, who we would play with and who we would see and who we would experience and whatnot, and, you know, and again, like everybody helped everybody else out. That's awesome. That community's great. Yeah. It helps a ton. And you guys kind of have that like shared, like you're all kind of starting to, to kind of, I hate to say blow up, but you know, get some exposure at the same time. So like shared experiences, I'm sure you guys asked each other all kind of stuff. Well, yeah, you know, like R.E.M. would come back from tour and say, like, why aren't you guys on tour doing doing it this way? Why aren't you, you know, going up to the Carolinas and hitting this? And we're like, okay, we'll go do that, you know, why, you know, because we were just going and sort of doing our New York, you know, on the weekends thing. And they came back and, um, you know, had, a, had paved this path for everybody else um and opened up all of these other clubs i mean we were recording we're about to re-release um an album called themes from venus that we recorded with mitch easter and i remember when we were recording that album with mitch in the late 80s that we were joking about when we and mitch was in a band called let's active mm-hmm. and um that we would go play eight clubs and the clubs always had it'd be like a tuesday night or a wednesday night you know always an off night uh-huh. but it was called it was their new wave night ah gotcha gotcha you know and so we we said why don't we start a band called new wave nights <laughs> but that's you know that's what it was it was like you know you would play these college towns that you know, wanted to be hip or the clubs would have their new wave night. And that's what, where we would get our bookings and, you know, it built from there and it built and built and then, you know, became more accepted. um, On those first couple tours though, or or weekend runs or whatever you guys are doing, was it like a big culture shock going to places like, you know, North Carolina and South Carolina and those, I mean, wherever you guys did go, was it like, oh, wow, there's there's college towns here, too, with kids that love this kind of music? Or was it how was it like? It was interesting. Um, definitely interesting. You know, the first first time that we were doing like kind of, you know, less lesser cities, you mm-hmm. know, we were doing the towns, you know, it was like New Wave Night. and. Yeah. You know, you might be dodging some, you know, you'd hear, you know, faggots, get the faggots off the stage. Uh-huh. And, you know, you might dodge a beer bottle or two. Uh-huh. Um, but country towns, kind of. Columbia, South Carolina. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I hope no one's, I'm not slagging Columbia, South Carolina, but it just, you know, wasn't what it, you know. Absolutely, it, yeah. Um. But, you know, we, but what we, you know, we would do is fill in for us, our big money makers were the, you know, the big cities mm-hmm. because they just, you know, we got played on radio there. And, um, you know, for example, Washington DC had a commercial station that played alternative music or what became called alternative music mm-hmm. called HFS. And um, so we could go to DC and, you know, we would play two nights at the nine thirty club, two shows a night and um, then drive, you know, across Virginia to WNL college and play some party there with, you know, a hundred 
hundred drunk frat boys that wanted to beat <laughs> us up. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And um, um, but then that changed. You know, when the records started, you know, more records came out. That changed. Um, and um, it was interesting. I mean, you know, especially when you're all of a sudden you're playing in the middle of Iowa. Yeah, and yeah, that's you know, the college is really you know want to, and they're paying your full rate, and, um, and you know it's a big deal, and you're you know, and you're doing that kind of stuff. You know, road work is a whole different thing than recording, and uh, and we did a ton of road work. <laughs> you guys are kind of known as a road band, right? Not as much as a studio band, correct? Well, I you know. We spent a lot of time on the road mm-hmm. to, to really work our records because, you know, they were art records. They weren't um, the types of records that you would immediately have commercial success from. Gotcha. And um, so we spent a lot of time working those uh, to develop an audience. Okay. And then we also, unfortunately, had management and agents that would keep us on the road so that's how they made their money mm, okay like booking uh, fees and stuff yeah and for us and that was difficult um it was really difficult and um um and it, it, in fact it was one of the reasons we in like the early 90s we said we have to take a break we'd signed to a new management company and told the management company that we needed a year off to write and to get our heads together because we had just come off of three years of nonstop touring and um, where we had put out a record and we had done a year by ourselves. Then we did 60 dates, you know, spread out over, I don't know how many months with the B-52s. That was, you know, when they had Rome and Love Shack and those hits. And then when we finished that tour, we had to go back out on the road for another year to work the record. It's a crazy and, amount of touring. And that's what record companies wanted also yeah. was, you know, now and, and back then you didn't make money from touring. You made your money from record sales. Gotcha. And now bands don't make any money from record sales. It's completely they make all on. their money from touring. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for us, it was all about that we really had to work hard to develop an audience. But we, you know, I remember it was like 91 or something. We got off the road and we said, we, we need a break. And, you know, we signed with this new agency and these fellows out of Memphis. And um, um, in fact, I remember we were in Memphis doing demos. And I don't know if you know who Alex Chilton was. Uh, Alex was hanging out of the studio and he's like, you guys are burnt out. And we're like, yeah. Uh, Alex was in the box tops and wrote that song September Girls, who's, you know, a really famous, famous musician. And, um, um, and you know, we told our, our manager manager that we needed this time off. And and they said, sure. And the next thing they know we know is they booked us like strings of dates really we were under contract for oh, man. and you know i was furious and 
So, you know, we went out and we did those string of dates to, you know, get out of the contract and we fired the management <laughs> and we said, let's take, let's just take a couple of years off. Let's take yeah. and write and record, you know, and do demos and, and take care of ourselves. And that ended up being like three years off where we kind of, we would get, you know, get together and record and write a little bit and, and we had an album completed which I think we we shelved mm-hmm. and then we wrote another album and which was finished in 95 but we didn't we knew that if we put it out then that they would immediately want us to go on the road mm. so we sat on it <laughs> until like 99 and then we started shopping it to labels so basically we took like eight years off really and um and then we shopped it to labels and we um, went to razor and tie and um and they took it and of course immediately wanted us to go out on the road do the rounds <laughs> and do the rounds again and we just weren't having it we yeah. just and we said we've got to figure out another way that we want to do this, and, um, and figure out a way that you know that pleases us, and sort of get back to the way that we wanted to make music in the first place, which was not to be a money maker for everybody else, nor to be a money maker for us, but you know to make to create music that jazzed us that turned us on that's awesome man that's really well put man and was it kind of at the time though i mean you're kind of hitting a i'd say well personally for me at least a creative peak with like themes for themes from venus is just a great record complete all the way through like is it scary to kind of hang it up right after that you know what i mean like you guys are kind of on the the plateau per se it was it was very scary to do mm-hmm. that um, because it was the record was a really good record and we worked it really hard and we wrote the record um we really wrote the record to work as this entirety of a record that there is not there is not an album just kind of throwaway track on Mm -hmm. it like every song is specifically we overwrote for the record so that we had more material that we could pick from and then you know we immediately said yeah let's start writing the next record but we need time off and the rec- you know the management sort of screwed us and so we you know we took care of those dates and then but we did start writing the next record mm-hmm. and um and we wrote it and um we i kind of compare ourselves to craft work yeah. you know if something's not right i mean we take so much time in between if something's not right we will shelve it and yeah and we wrote a pretty we wrote a record and we shelved about half of it and then when we got we decided to we said you know we thought no 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 not these songs and we need to write more and because we demoed them and and um and you know half of the record i think was good and then we started writing um more and um that album ended up being the sky at night um for raising time which didn't come out until 2001 really (laughs) 
I mean, everyone's like, where have you guys been? It's like, we've been, <laughs> you know, we've been writing. And um, I mean, we, we have a lot, we have a lot of songs that we've never released and we're actually going through now and Sorry, going to, um, we found an, an entire, we found that whole record that we shelved. And then we realized there were actually some really great songs. Oh man. <laughs> and um, so we're going to re-record a bunch of that stuff. And we've got, you know, material for basically three albums that we're just sort of sitting on and we're slowly recording. The record company we're with now wants an album and uh, next year from us. Um, of new stuff or a reissue? New stuff. Okay. The reissues will be coming out as well. You know, we're remastering the um, records and redoing all the art. We're doing everything that we wanted to do, but the record companies wouldn't let us do. Really? Um, to, our, <laughs> to our albums. Um, you know, remixing some of them. Um, mat, remaster, mastering the way we wanted to, you know, because back in the day, we would finish a record and it would just get sent off to the record company. The record company would send it off to be mastered. You would not be involved in that at all. Really? Okay. And, and um, so now we can be involved in that process and, and, you know, we can do things we want and it's still us. And, we still think the same way when it comes to music. Uh, I mean, it's not like we have ever said we need to write a hit. Mm. We had, we, we did an album called, um, um, this ain't no outer spaceship. Yes. Um, which was for a, a subsidiary of RCA and the owner of the label, um, it was a great roster of bands on the label, a really amazing roster of bands. Um, and, but the record, the label itself went belly up and then, um, RCA just took everything and shelved it. Um, and, and, what was interesting about the record was like I, you know, I remember finishing it you know we it was one of the first times that we were really we had a producer that came in and you know worked on the arrangements with us and uh, um, you know really kind of worked uh, you know worked worked us mm -hmm. um, for the record and had a very vision specific vision for the sound of the record and you know the record was done and it gets sent to sent it gets sent to RCA and you know they take it from there. You know, we have no say so in it at all. Uh, this is is this themes you're talking about right now? Or this ain't no outer spaceship. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And themes um was um I never liked the mastering it um and it was really only mastered for vinyl. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it came to it, we went back to the whole library of it. We, um, and, you know, found tracks that we'd done with a, another producer named Brendan O'Brien, who produced Pearl Jam and a bunch of, you know, acts that became huge. And, you know, they weren't huge at the, you know, he wasn't working with those huge acts at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so we've got some of the stuff that he worked on, on this reissue. And, um, and then, 
you know, we got to remaster it and the mastering is really sounds good. And um, then the next record we're going to put out is um, our second album called Around the Bend, which is uh, really a transitional record for us. Um, because we is when we really we started to introduce vocals into what we were doing. Um, there was still a lot of instrumental, but you can see that each song is has a different flavor to it, and you can see that we're sort of working through what we wanted to do. Um, and to me, which makes it a really interesting record, and it's not it's not like our first album, and it's not like Themes from Venus. It's not this whole cohesive thing gotcha and it has it's stylistically it's very diverse um was that the reason kind of for like skipping it because i was going to ask you why you guys reissued the first one and then went to themes i just wondered what the reasoning was because they put themes in the and um the first album bookend each other um okay. in a sense because they're both written as a whole they're both completely conceptualized as a whole Mm, I can see and that. one is at the start of us and mm. it's 100 instrumental and it was written as one album and as a whole and then you have this snapshot of themes from venus um that we had reached a level of our what really i considered our our apex of maturity as a band because mm -hmm. we'd spent so much time on the road and it's this it's like the, very much like the first album in the sense that the concept of it is it's an entire piece of music and it's very thought out. Mm -hmm. So they match in that way. And I wanted to contrast them um, and release the records out of order. In fact, you know, it to me is really important. It was important to show this album next to this album. Yes. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um and then the next record is kind of to show, at least to us, I mean, you know, I maybe the audience gets this, but for me, it's like, it's, it's just how I wanted to do it, really. And yeah. the, the band did too, because we've kind of never given a shit what people wanted us to do. <laughs> it's very um, on brand for you guys to just do it in whichever order you want. I like that. However long it takes and uh -huh. how how we do it it's you know if you only knew like how much stuff we would record and throw in the garbage can <laughs> and just because we did you know i mean the record company might think this is like going to be the biggest hit on the planet uh -huh. and you know we were like yuck you know this is terrible <laughs> and uh, so the next record you know is around the band and that's mm. we're going to re-release that and um I've already remastered it. The master, it sounds great. Oh, really? Um, and the cover is beautiful. Oh, man. Um, um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. And then we have an album. We started, it's interesting because after that album, after our second album, we started an album and we never really finished it. And it came out as an EP because we had to go on the road uh -huh. and and um and but it actually ended up at the time being one of our biggest albums and well it was actually ep because mm -hmm. we did we did a cover of what 
nobody at the time even knew who the band was. Mm. We did a cover of Kraftwerk's song Neon Lights. Yes. And um, which ended up being number one on college radio and all the alternative charts and sat there for weeks at number one. And and also for me, it was the, the record was pointing in this direction that I really wanted to take the band and I think the band wanted to go. Um, um, which you start to see on the St. Oana spaceship and then really comes to fruition on um, Games from Venus. And then when we did The Sky at Night, you really see it sort of come to fruition. Um, and the you know, it's interesting right now what we're writing now, we're going back and, and working on it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, because we're working sort of in a different way with some of the songs that we've never worked before. Um, where, you know, like I would have a song that maybe I've written the music to and, I'd send the tape to Mike and Mike would write the lyrics and the melodies and whatnot too. And then we'd take it to the studio and completely rearrange it in the studio. And usually we write by um, collaboratively, we, as we collaborate, we get together and we hash out the music that way. And then take it on, we would take it on the road mm -hmm. and road work it and um and then go record it and um music's so technical I, I i can't see any way other way that you guys could do it you know what i mean like to, separately it seems well, so so grows so much you know what i mean there's there's a precision in our music that's um um it's hard for me to explain actually mm -hmm. but it's the music is very precise the way we write it so that if one little thing is off that like a song will fall completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we would go and road work the music. And, um, cause once the song was written, we really had to get it in the pocket and, um, and, and know it and have the dexterity and whatnot to play it. Even though it might sound like a simple rock song, it was very precise. And um, it's interesting, you know, we're playing in March at the 40 watt and, and we just put together a set list and there's certain songs I'm looking on the set list. I'm like, oh my God, I've really got to go and work on these together. You know, because it's like, if I don't hit this one little thing, you know, it's not like I'm just you know, we're strumming and hitting bar chords. Yeah, there's right. not that. You know, there's a little bit, you know, we try to, you know, it's not like we're a, a jam band either. <laughs> um, but there's a precision in it that, uh -huh. that, that has to be captured. And um, I'd always wondered if like the way you guys kind of make songs like grow per se, like th there isn't as much repetition as there is kind of growth in my opinion. Is that kind of a product of like not having a singer at first and being kind of instrumental first? Like we got to make this entertaining. We can't just bar chord it up, verse, chorus, first chorus. You know what I mean? I think that's, I think you, that's very perceptive. Um, I think you're probably one of the first people to ever point that out. Um, but yeah, I think it came from our instrumental days that, um, 
that we always knew that there had to be a dynamic sort of um, increase within a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a good friend of mine at the time, um, the lead singer of a band called The Bongos, who actually hooked us up with our first booking agent. And, mm-hmm. and um, he pointed out something that we had never realized. He said, you do something in your songs that not many people do is that there's always the unexpected. Mm-hmm. So that there's a turnaround. It might go from like, even in an instrumental song, what we would consider a verse and a chorus mm-hmm. that the turnaround in it is completely unexpected how it goes. And that sort of always stuck with us, but always there is that build, um, in the songs, um, and development. Um, and in fact, we, it, interestingly enough, we've actually looked at that and said, how can we write songs at work without that? Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> really? And, um, you know, but it always ends up going the other way. <laughs> you know, we did a song with, there's a instrument kind of semi-instrumental song on, on the the album the sky at night called as the ship sails on which is probably my favorite love tractor song of all time and um it has one lyric in it um and the lyric is um the sound of is this the sound of rain falling underwater that's the lyric that's it it only happens in one place in the song and it's all instrumental and but you know, I thought it was going to stay like this sort of level song, but sure enough, I you know had to add strings. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you know, and this drop down and this change, and it's like mm-hmm. it, you know, it just happens. It's I can't, you know, we can't help ourselves sometimes. It's the love tractor formula. I like it, man. It makes you guys you. You know what I mean. It is. It, well, there is a bit of a formula, but there's also we try to break that formula. We try to break <laughs> the formula. In fact, I've, I've got this, Mike has been in the studio working on a piece of music, um, and I've got this big idea to, to like, blow it up. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and um, to sort of break the formula. And... Uh-huh. Um, We'll see what he says about that. <laughs> it's like it's something that he's like he really loves this song and he really likes it. I've got I've told him I've got this big idea and mm-hmm. it's gonna blow it up and it's gonna it's just weird and so we'll see. I guess kind of backpedaling a little bit, but this is just a, I'm just curious. Was it? I guess I assume it was a relief, but was it frustrating when like you guys are putting out all this great original music? And it's getting exposure stuff, and then you release one cover, and it goes to number one on college radio. <laughs> no, it was so it was so weird. It yeah. was, but it was really a good song, and uh-huh. it's like I really believe that you cannot. The only way you can do a cover song is if you can improve upon the song. Absolutely. And you know, I I really get upset when I hear over and over again you know maybe some song someone's covering it mm-hmm. and they don't make it any better yes you know, like you know i've heard people do like 
David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. Mm-hmm. And it's just like so twee and math and not very good. And the only person I've heard do it better is, is um, Michael did a version of it uh, at a live performance somewhere. I think at a David Bowie tribute. And, gotcha. um, and because Michael's voice has matured in such a way that's really fascinating. Yes. And I really, really like the way his singing is now. Um, and I like the singles that he's putting out. Me too. I've been enjoying this. I'm glad you to know, see it. I think they're really, really good. Yeah. And um, um, and just, and it really, it's, anyway, I could just go on about it. <laughs> me too, man. <laughs> it me really happy. Last time I saw him, I was just yeah. like, I was telling him that how much I loved it. I just thought they were great. It's like make more. <laughs> he's a New York man as well, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's a, he's here. There, there are a bunch of Athenians here. Yeah. A lot. There are a lot. And they, you know, they keep coming. You guys are <laughs> <And> migrated. <laughs> we're all migrating. Um, you know, but it's, you know, I, it's still rock and roll town, yeah. you know, Brooklyn. Was there was there ever a moment in the Love Tractor, I guess, just discography or touring life where you guys are like, "Yes, we finally crossed the plateau into where we want to be." Do you, do you get that's a big question? I know. Was there ever a ta-da moment? You know what I mean? There was, and it was oh. really um, around themes from Venus, where we were we had been on the road for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, we had been on the road for a long time doing, working, this ain't no outer spaceship, and then Themes from Venus, that our precision as musicians was, to, it was, I listened to tapes from that era yeah. on this live, and I'm, I'm kind of blown away because I can't play that way anymore. Uh. <laughs> I just can't. I don't, you know, because it came from playing every night. Yes. You know? And and this sort of dexterity that you generate, and and it's not like riding a bicycle, and um, and at all, and um, so there was that there was for us, and also you know going out on big stages where we weren't nervous or anything like that, and mm-hmm. um, you know it. Uh, I don't know what year that was, but you know, you know, you we you become when you're at least for us as a band, we were two bands. There was the live band, and then there was the sort of recording writing band, mm-hmm. and we would have to put on two different hats for that. Gotcha. And um, and so for me the tada moment when it came to sort of recording a production or creating a sound was when we did the ep that had neon lights on it mm-hmm. was this tada because it had these specific things happening that i really liked um and yeah and i saw it as this sort of direction um but then live, it was some somewhere in the late 80s or early 90s, um, you know, where we could walk out on any stage and play anything in our repertoire, mm-hmm. um, anything. 
you know, someone screamed a song and, you know, play this, which like, all right, <laughs> you know, and, you know, knock it out of the park. Really? Um, you know, just like a home run. And that was great. You know, that was really fun to be able to do that. I bet that's amazing, man. I wonder, is there any, I know it's also a big ass cause you guys have played so much, but like any, like marquee shows that you look back on super fondly, like that was, that was a great night or 40 watt club. That was a great night or New York city, you know, anything that sticks out to you? I, you know, I would say probably the first time we ever played really Highland park was a like, you know, like a little drum machine and, uh-huh. and, um, you know, it was in uh, all of our friends dance, all of our friends wasted people who I can't, won't name because uh-huh. they're famous, you know, <laughs> you know, falling off a porch and, you know, trying to pee off a porch and falling into bushes and whatnot. Um, you know, playing, playing like three nights at radio city music hall, uh-huh. you know, stuff like that. They're, you know, it's cool. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Stuff you'll never forget. I'm sure. Yeah. You don't forget it. Yeah. Um, you know, you drive by and you go, Oh yeah, I played there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, universal amphitheater, um, different theaters, different places. You know, uh, uh, I remember we played the tower theater in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. that's where Bowie recorded uh, a live album called David Live, which I really loved in high school. I loved the way his singing was on that record. He had taken, it was right after his album Diamond Dogs and he decided to turn and take all of the songs, all of his old back catalog and make it into Plastic Soul. Mm-hmm. And so he funked it all up. And he had been on the road, obviously, for a long time. And his voice had had reached this place. It was kind of raspy and kind of Rolling Mm Stones-ish. And and I really dug it. And, you know, playing that same place was kind of, it was like, you know, it was like a cool vibe for me. You know, you get to go play where your heroes. Yeah. Or you get to go meet your heroes and, uh, you know. That was always really cool to me. Well, that's kind of full circle, man. Cause like when bands in Athens, when we come and play 40 watt now, we're like, man, Pylon, Love Tractor, REM, B-52s, all those guys, they started this. You know what I mean? It carries some weight. Uh, yeah. Very cool. And we you, had no idea. Yeah, <laughs> you had no idea. <laughs> and no did idea. you ever play? I, I assume you'd be the uptown location to be you guys played, right? 40 watt. That was always we, you. We played every 40 watt location. Even the first one? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. We played every 40 watt location. <laughs> Does so, it carry the same weight? Like I was, I was wondering if like what you guys thought about like the current location, like, is it the same or do you guys like, man, I wish it was still over uptown. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the 40 watt. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's Barry. Yeah, yeah. There's Valina. Yeah. I love Valina. You know, so it's, there's, it's, you know, it's the 40, it's, it, yeah, it's changed locations, but, you know, I mean, we played it, you know, when it was above, I don't know what is there now. It was a, a sandwich shop called Udy's on the corner of, um, 
Is it Broad Street, Broad and College? I think it's Starbucks. <laughs> and, you know, playing upstairs above there. Mm-hmm. And which really was kind of the first 40 watt. The, the other one was called the 40 watt was, you know, was caught was Curtis's Curtis Crow's studio art studio, which really was, you know, wasn't really a club. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was just a party location. But, you know, the first sort of commercial club was across the street. And then it moved down on to, I always forget my streets in Athens. Me Is too. it Broad Street? Is where the Caledonia? Yeah, that's correct. And yeah. it moved there. Mm-hmm. Then it moved uptown. And then it moved back down to that location. Mm-hmm. And then it moved to its current location. Gotcha. Uh, um, you know, but it was always, you know, Jared, Barry, um, Felina, um, you know, Pat the Wiz, who did sound, who I, no longer does sound. Um, and then we also played a place called Tyrone's. Yes, I've read a was, lot about this place which was before the 40 watt club. And it was a, um, you know, it was a rock and roll place. It was sort of like CBGB's in the fact that it was, it, it was built like CBGB's was supposed to be like a blues club, like, mm-hmm. you know, with like a hippie bar and Tyrone's was sort of that, mm-hmm. but they caught on really quickly that they could fill the place. It cost a buck to get in. That was the cover charge. Um, but they could fill the place, you know, with all of these art students. And they had a little stage off to the side. And then they moved and they rearranged the whole room and built a bigger stage and um, to accommodate, you know, make the acts look bigger. And that's, we would all play there. And yeah. I saw worked. a poster for this. It was like it was like tie rods. It was like love tractor pylon. It was like side effects. All you guys on one bill. I was like, wow. Yeah. yeah. Nineteen eighty-two, I think. You would go into the bathroom, and there would be like you know, Eno is God. <laughs> that would be instead of like you know, for a good time. <laughs> Eno is God, and you know there were like there was a great record store downtown that you know. Every week had um, imports of the latest, hippest singles from New York and from London. And they were, you know, 45, you know, little 45s of, you know, the Clash, the Jam, all the, you know, stuff that was, you know, was non-commercial. And that's how we heard everything. You know, it's not like, you know, we had the internet. So you pay a dollar fifty and buy a single. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, or, you know, like there, there was a f- famous art professor who's a great friend, Robert Croker, who taught painting and drawing at the University of Georgia, who always had the best parties. And I remember going to one of his parties and he lived out towards Winterville and he would always show the incredible shrinking man on the side of a van um the party would of course would go on until you know sunrise Mm -hmm. 
and hearing Devo's first single, Satisfaction, I guess it was Satisfaction, but, you know, it wasn't even out on Warner Brothers. It was, you know, self-produced. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that was what the network was. It was, you know, passing around all of these sort of singles yeah. that bands would self-produce and put out. And, um, you know, the B, like the B-52's first single, Danny Beard produced, put it out. Mm-hmm. And he owned, you know, Wax and Facts in, in Atlanta, which, and, and that eventually became DB Records, which if not for DB Records, there wouldn't be an yeah. Not for, there are a couple of people. That's why I call it scenism. It's, if it wasn't for Danny Beard, for Jeremy Ayers, um, John C. Wright, um, Sam C. Wright, a number of people that, um, Robert Waldrop, I mean, I, I could go on. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of women also, you know, feminism was a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, the women in the scene really controlled. I mean, they fucking cracked the whip. <laughs> um, you know, in what way? And just, just like guys get it together. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, and, you know, we want this. This is a great song or, you know, and, you know, also it was very, everything was very ahead of its time. I mean. You know, every band, you know, um, you know, I would say every band was feminist. Um, it was all LGBTQ positive. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there were gay members in every band. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was, it was this rarity. It was just, just very interesting. And you can read, you know, Grace Hale's book, um, uh, which I think is a really good book. My my opinion is, you know, uh, of all of the books that have been written about Athens, it's probably the closest. But it. What was the name uh, of her book? Um, is it Cool Town? Cool Town. Yeah, I love that one. That's great. Um, it, to me, it's sort of halfway through. Uh, you know, Grace, don't shoot me, because <laughs> um, I really like her. Um, yeah. But, you know, to me, halfway through, it falls apart because mm-hmm. I, I'm only focused on when we were in Athens and we were experiencing what was going on with the B-52s and the other bands that were happening and whatnot. And once it became a commercial scene, I had no interest in it whatsoever. And also, we were on the road then. Yeah, so you kind of lose touch with Athens when that happens? Yeah, in fact, we were bigger in other towns than we were in Athens. Really? That's you know, we would play Austin, and we were much bigger in Austin than we were in Athens. Or we'd play Washington, D.C. or New York. Or, you know, we would go to Los Angeles, and the fire department would come and shut down our shows. Really? And, um, That's crazy. You know, and we, you know, we would be gone from Athens for so long. We'd come back, and we kind of feel like we'd have to beg for a show. Really? <laughs> it was crazy. Bizarre. So it's kind of like Athens, it while it's your whilst it's your hometown, like it seems like it can only take you so far. Like you have to expand. It'd be easy to stay in Athens band, is what I'm always saying. It's like you kind of have to tour though if you want to cross that plane per se. Well, 
Well, that, that's the way I always looked at it was, mm-hmm. you know, people write the history of Athens. And I'm, to me, it's like the bands, the, the bands that went out and toured, I have respect for. The bands that, that didn't, uh, you know, you know, I just yeah. don't, uh, you know, <laughs> they were just kind of hanging out trying to, you know, you know, get laid and and get free drugs and beer and whatnot. <laughs> and be part of the scene and not put in the work. I mean, because everyone else really put in a lot of hard work. Yeah. And we put in a lot of hard work that other people really got to take advantage of. And which is great. You know, I mean, I felt like the for me, I felt like Athens had sort of died. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, until Elephant Six mm-hmm. happened. And they really came in and revitalized it. And what year was that or what time period? I don't know. Uh, familiar with sometime it. in the 90s. Sometime yeah. in the 90s. Gotcha. You know, with, with you know, Olivia Tremor Control and the Apples and Stereo and Neutral Milk Hotel and, you know, a bunch of great bands really terrific bands um and they were doing their own thing they weren't you know trying to make commercial hits it wasn't like matthew sweet who moved to athens was the first person first person outside of the scene to move to athens to use athens very smartly so to use athens to get a huge record deal with columbia records oh really so like the the cloud of living there kind of got it yeah yeah and, Interesting. Uh, I don't blame him. Yeah, that's pretty pretty wise, I suppose. But Matthew's really talented. You know, yeah. he's a talented guy, and uh, and you know, he graduated high school and moved to Athens in order to, and he immediately ingratiated himself with everyone in the scene, and um, um, you know, and good for him. Um, and he worked, and he worked at it. Mm-hmm. You know, he really worked, and. Um, but there were plenty of bands that were, you know, no, you don't know, but were <laughs> just kind of hanger-ons. And I kind of know what you mean. Like, I see bands around town. I'm pretty in touch with that sort of thing. And, like, I see them, like, not touring and, like, kind of still expecting something to happen. Like, I just uh, I just don't, I don't get it, if you get what I mean. Like, why would you not go out and try to build everywhere, sort of? And it is difficult and expensive. We we were in Tuscaloosa this weekend with my band, and uh, even then, when we tell them we're from Athens, it still carries some weight, man. They go, "What's Red Panic and REM and Love Tractor?" Yeah. I was like, "Yeah, man, that's where we're from." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah widespread panic. I mean, what yeah. you know, widespread panic had, was what I loved about that. They're such great guys, and what I loved about them is they came along and became really big and famous by doing something completely different than what the rest of us were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they came along and, you know, they did complete jam band, yeah. full all out. Sounds nothing and, alike. And became huge for it, mm-hmm. which I really love the fact that they did that and yeah. that, that they weren't, you know, like these hipster art kids. That, yeah. you know, or, I think they have a song named Love Tractor, don't they? 
They do have a subtractor. <laughs> and we have a song called Widespread Panic. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we're all friends with those guys. Uh, and, um, where, where did the name come from? I meant to kind of start with this. I've always kind of wondered, what was the influence on the name? LSD. Oh, really? <laughs> we used to call it love and spiritual development. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Well, I watch all the like the videos that I can find on YouTube. Some of the videos like, um, gosh, I can't think of one. Maybe maybe Venice. Like there's kind of like, I hate to say a country theme, but it's like usually you guys out in some sort of country area or country house or something, right? Was that purposeful or is that was just Athens? It's just a location. Yeah. You know, the first video we ever did was from from our second album, and it was a song that we did kind of as a joke mm-hmm. on the album, where we, you know, we were just jamming, and we came up with this kind of country riff song. And I picked up a banjo, and I was playing a banjo, and <laughs> and and of course the record company said, "Well, this is actually a great pop song. Let's do a video for it." We're like, "Okay." And so we went up to North Georgia near Howard Finster's place and did this video for it, which MTV was just starting. So it got a ton of play on MTV. And I remember we were touring the record and uh, we were in Los Angeles and we had a bunch of record companies fighting over us and we weren't interested in any of the record companies <laughs> um, because they wanted us to be what that one with that song spin your partner yeah Uh, yeah they they wanted we we were sitting in a meeting at emi with craig leon who's really famous producer um produced a great album called uh by a band called suicide Mm -hmm. which um influenced like techno pop music more than anything you know, it was like suicide and craft work. I mean, and he, I think he produced Bondi's second album, Ooh, okay. produced a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of sire acts that were on sire records. And um, so they had Craig in the room and the AR team, and they, you know, sat us down and they were whining and dining us. And you know, like, mm. you're going to be this. We got Craig to produce the record. We got this this new thing that's happening it's this mm-hmm. it's this it's this country um rock thing and you know they're describing to us it's like uh like folk folk revival country yeah. rock and we're like uh that's not us <laughs> you know we did one song one <laughs> you know as something like that and mm-hmm. and but that's not us and so in, they ended up signing like Lone Justice and Jason and the National Scorchers. Who oh, really? Were, you know, and we we're like, you know, we were like not interested in that. You know, it's like anyone would have said, yeah, 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 please, we want a record deal because everyone wanted, everyone wanted a record deal from a major label then. But you know, it, it always came at a cost. Yeah, yeah, you had to give it something up. Always came at a cost, mm-hmm. and we were never really willing to pay that price i think that's respectable man very respectable i had wondered though for like the the themes uh reissue like there's a few songs that you guys are dropping i think is it uh i broke my saw there's a long version is this just like i'd wondered if like there was label pressure for you guys to make it shorter and more singly or actually we decided 
that it was that the song was long and yeah. that we that the, one of the choruses wasn't right and we actually spliced in if you listen really closely uh-huh. direct to the the regular version of it the first course and the second course are exactly the same really and um so we spliced the song up and we cut it um in a certain way that just felt better that um um and that that other section just was sitting it it was sort of dropped in and was part of our writing process and we were sort of self-producing and mm-hmm. with mitch also i mean mitch was producing too and we were all like yeah, what is the point of this piece right here and you know, we were trying to tighten up the song, really, is what we were trying to do. And, you know, then when we went back through and we listened, we're like, wow, actually, that's really, you know, well, I like that. Here's an extra two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds great, man. I love it. I've been, I've been I listening it. to I love it, too. Yeah. I, mean, I like those mixes. I like the mix of um, the uh, mix of, um, it's called Nighttime Time Zone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was is actually King's Venus, and uh, Brendan O'Brien did that mix, and I kind of wish wish that he had done an entire mix of the album as well. Wow. Yeah. He mixed a few songs on the record, but then eventually we took it back up to Mitch because Mitch was real, really where our head was. At. Brendan Brendan's great. Yeah, Brendan was doing something that. I think maybe it was me personally, I was trying to stay away from, which was he was mixing the record to sound like the times, to God. sound exactly like that era. Yeah. You know? And I didn't want it to sound like that. I wanted it to has, have its own, you know, sound to its own. And Mitch Absolutely. really got that. And, um, um, probably to Danny Beard's chagrin, um, you know, we went back up to Mitch's to finish the record. But Brendan's like, I love, I love Brendan's mix of it. Like I listen to it now and I'm like, God damn it. Why didn't we have to mix the whole record also, you know, because he had all the tracks and we were cutting stuff with him. We were bouncing between Mitch and Brendan um you know it was easy it was much easier brendan was in atlanta doing work and we were in athens for us to drive to atlanta because there was no music industry in athens there was none there was studios there was no there were no studios there was chick piano (laughs) (laughs) which now is closing yeah i hate to hear that unfortunately and um those sweet guys at chick piano and um and so it was much easier for us to go to Atlanta and do work than to drive all the way to Winston-Salem. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, but it came down to kind of like, you know, I just wasn't digging what what um, Brendan at the time was putting out because it was sounding too commercial to my ears. Totally. And, um, and so we went back to, and I think the other guys agreed and um i can just i I can only speak for myself because i can only remember what i was thinking at the time um armstead remembers what everybody 
Uh, he's, he has the memory of an elephant. And, uh, but I really like I really like his mix. I really really like that. And um, and I think there's some other mixes of his, but we didn't include those. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? Let me think. Nighttime time zone, same as themes from Venus, and there's yeah. there's saxophone on themes for Venus, and there's no sax on the Brendan mix, correct? And Correct. it's a little more synthy, maybe, right? It's it's all the synths are still there. Yeah. The funny thing about that album is, is no one no one ever notices it. Is the album is covered in synthesizer. Yeah, and, it's, got, it's like um, soft synth kind of vibe. It is. I was using. I was gifted. Um, our sound man at the time gifted a, a Yamaha CS80, which is probably the most expensive coveted synthesizer you could ever have really look online for one right now they cost 30 to fifty thousand dollars and back but when he gifted it to me it was worth nothing it, was, <laughs> it weighed maybe 300 pounds good lord and it was all hardwired and um and it only had four memory slots that you would have to lift this thing open and it had little mini sliders in mm-hmm. to, you know, that mimicked the whole, the major part of the keyboard. And then it had four slots inside there that you could have memory. So it wasn't, you know, it was the same synth that uh, Vangelis used to do Blade Runner. Ah, okay. All the music on Blade Runner. It's really? the most unique sounding synthesizer ever. <laughs> and so all of those sounds that are on that record are are a CSA, or Yamaha CS80, which the power supply eventually burnt out. And there was, I was like, oh, you know, I had all these digital synths. And I was like, well, these are easier and faster and they're lighter and whatnot. And, uh, and John Poe, who was in Guadalcanal Diary, I left it with him and said, see if you can get the power supply fixed. And, you know, I was like, uh, and I wish I had it now. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> I really wish I had it now. But, it's um, it's kind of, the, the whole record sounds, like you say, like, synthy, but it doesn't sound like you guys, like, went synth, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't sound like Jump by Van Halen. It sounds, like, subtle, like you guys are still, the guitar is still leading the way with some synth components, which is great. But though it's because of that type of synthesizer, that's what made that synth so interesting. It had a mm-hmm. it was the first synthesizer that had polyphonic aftertouch. So it's like how you played or pressed on the keys would impress or change the sound. And um and it had this real amazing warmth to it mm-hmm. and had a modulation matrix in it. I I mean I'm speaking you know, synthesizer geek here. Oh, I'm interested, man. And it it had the, it has this sound that no other no other synthesizer has, and which makes it probably one of the most coveted. That and the Yamaha DX1, um, um, which was the giant version of the DX7. Mm-hmm. And I only played one of them and it's huge and it was actually programmable, unlike a DX7. Um, I played one in Austin one time at a music store and those were selling for like $50,000. And, um, but I got this synthesizer for free and I was tired of playing guitar at the time. And I thought, oh God, let me just, I'll, 
I'm going to write a few songs using this machine. And so I don't have to play guitar because <laughs> it's yeah. easier because, because Mike would be singing and playing guitar. And so he was playing, you know, rock chords. And so I'm yeah. the one filling in all the other stuff on guitar. And it's like, you know, it's like, Oh man, you know, it's like, it's a lot of work. Need a break. Yeah. I needed a break. And so, um, we started lugging that around shows and writing mm. and, um, and, but every, almost every song, I mean, Crash, that song Crash yeah, is Yamaha CS80. Themes from Venus, Yamaha CS80. I mean, it's, you hear the openings to those songs, like, these yeah, sounds, that's, that is out of that synth. Interesting. It's and you're playing all the synths on the record? I was going to ask this because I'd wondered. And what was the thought process on like, I don't know. I guess I assume they're in the originals, but like Crash and Satan were also released instrumental, correct? Yeah. Um, wait, you know, for two reasons. One reason was I really liked the way they sounded instrumentally. Yeah. Because there was a density. Um, it's a really thick record. And um, when you take the vocals off, you hear all this other instrumentation. Uh-huh. And and i wanted to have that and document that and then also um if you have to go do like a tv show or perform someplace and you mime to the song but you you'll sing it as uh-huh. you'll sing it yeah but the you know the instruments aren't plugged in so, you know, <laughs> you're playing like that Very so you have to have those gotcha yeah. Gotcha. So you already had it bounced down. <laughs> Just toss yeah. it on there. It's two more tracks. I like yeah. it, man. When, when you guys are reissuing these records, though, I always wonder, like, does it kind of put you in that mode of, like, you're thinking about, like, just that era? Like, do you get, I hate to say nostalgic, but, like, when you're reissuing Themes for Venus, are you, like, just just going back through the years, finding tour T-shirts, finding graphics, finding old artwork? No, not at all? Just very... In fact, the exact opposite. Really? To me... <laughs> To me, they sound at least to me. Uh-huh. You know, I'm the artist, so you know, and Armstead and Mike um, are the artists. To us, uh-huh. they sound current. They sound yeah. just exactly the way we wanted them to sound then as now. They don't sound dated to us. That was the sound that we intended them to be, and that's what they are. Yeah. Uh, Somebody, you know, somebody might say, uh, you know, oh, it sounds dated, but actually, you know, I haven't, I've never, or at least no one's ever said that to my face. (laughs) Oh man, it still sounds fresh. Both of them. You know, they should sound fresh because that's the way they, you know, that that's always our intent when we write and record is we're writing for right now. We're not trying to follow any trends. Um, It's amazing to me how like themes is like so like you could just tell it was written together. Like there's not a single track on there that to me like is an outlier as in like sound wise, you know, like it sounds complete, man. And that's so difficult to do. So yeah. It was really that. difficult to do. Yeah, I imagine <laughs> it was, it was, it's, but that was, that was the intention of the record. And we spent a lot of time, we're not the fastest band in the world. <laughs> Notably. And we spent a lot of time writing that album. 
and demoing the album and then taking it out and like going to Florida and slugging out in crummy clubs in Florida, you know, and, to, and just playing, you know, where, you know, people are screaming at us, play other songs. And we're like, no, we're playing these, and we're just, you know, hammering them out on the road um, to really learn it and know the songs and, and figure out what's working, what's not working. And which is kind of part of our process. Mm-hmm. And, um, which we're trying to reintroduce into our process now. <laughs> um, um, but it was, you know, really written as that whole. And um, we have, I mean, we're sitting on probably 30 songs right now. That's and smart. we're trying to figure out how we, if we just go and record all of them and then, see what works together and that's not the way we normally work mm-hmm. um so i have a feeling what we're going to probably end up doing is go record all of them more in a demo state fast and see what we like and what's working together and then go out and play those back like do a group of shows and play like a batch of those like this is what we think works together yes. and try that out and see how that you know, because we still really think of writing an entire album. And, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's, it's also the way we grew up. I mean, the mm-hmm. type of music that we listened to is, is teenagers and mm-hmm. in the 70s. I mean, we all grew up listening to Roxy Music and uh, Brian Eno and David Bowie and Kraftwerk. Yeah. And um, I think we were much the Velvet Underground. We were much more impressed by those acts than you know. We never, you know. I mean, I love the Stones. I, I listened to the yeah. Stones, um, Pink Floyd, um, but we listened to these bands that really put out albums, mm-hmm. and um, that so you know, just like the fact that you know, like Bowie when he did the album Low, that you know he had the the vision to have this, these two sides of the album, mm-hmm. you know, one is this rock and roll yeah. kind of art side and the other is this complete sort of ambient side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thought of that and the thought of going into that, of course, you know, RCA hating, <laughs> you know, getting that and just like yeah. hating it. And, and I, you know, you listen to Lone Out, it sounds, to me, it sounds just as current. today as you know anybody and um you know more current um than someone like billy eilish or you know um who i like you know i actually i you know i mean there's i like a lot of stuff that you know is considered popular shut up watch (laughs) <laughs> um, you keep up with any Athens bands that are kind of starting to hit off these days or are you kind of out of touch with the being in New York kind of out of touch with the Athens I'm locals a little out of touch uh-huh. being I am a little um you know being here I'm much more in touch with the bands here totally. um, um but you know if, uh, yeah, I'm out of touch. <laughs> I'm out of touch with the Athens bands right now. A couple of years on the road and moving to New York will do that, won't it? Yeah, well, you know, 
20 years and 20 plus years in New York. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, but you know, I, you know, when elephant six, when all the bands like in the nineties, um, I was really digging all of that. And, um, and then there's some other bands. I've heard. Mm. I'll have to get Valina somebody to make me a tape. <laughs> <laughs> Valina's got her ear to the ground for that sort of stuff. She does. Yeah, she, oh. she's. I'm excited. She's going to be coming on the show after you. I'm very, very thrilled to talk to her for a while too. Uh, Valina, tell her I said hey. Valina. I will. I will. Valina and her sister are my sweethearts. <laughs> I love them to death. And, you know, again, another Athens, you know, these Athens women that kick ass. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, these, you know, like I said, I can't, I can't express how much in the early scene in Athens, how feminism and the acceptance of LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. you know, was just done. It was there. Yeah. That, you know, the women, really you know kicked kicked ass yeah and especially at our school i mean look at vanessa look at the b-52s yeah you know art school was all very masculine and really male dominated and then you know you've got you know vanessa and cindy and kate <laughs> out there just kicking ass <laughs> gotta love it man <laughs> yeah, it's great. You know, it's you know, it's amazing, and you know, hopefully, there's going to be more of that. You know, yeah. but, um, you know, I, I'm always looking for like, you know, what is the next Athens band? Do you think? Uh, well, there's speaking of women, actually, there's this uh, two girls that are I think they're 21 each, and they they headlined the theater last night. I think they sold 600, 800 tickets, so they're, they're just killing it right now. Really? You know, they're called Hotel Fiction. You should check them out. I think they're they're next up, but just two oh, awesome God. girls. Yeah, they're talented. I'll, I'll have to send you some songs over, man. But uh, it's just funny that you say that because literally last night they stepped it up to the theater, which is, you know, kind of a traveling grounds for everybody. Speaking <laughs> of which, though, I wonder why you guys, when you come back to Athens, you do two nights at 40 Watt instead of one night at the theater. Because it's the 40 Watt. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. That was answered. I love it. <laughs> You know, it's Barry and it's uh-huh. Helena, and that's just, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we if years ago we used to play the theater all the time, uh-huh. and um, and that was simply because the forty watt was, uh, I think it was where the Caledonia was. Um, it was in between, you know, um, before it had moved to the um, current location on Washington Street. Mm-hmm. I'm, getting my, I'm just trying to think of my streets. <laughs> no um, worries. Um, so we would play the theater. And, I, you know, uh, the smelly, it was such a different place then than yeah. what that theater is now. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was the same size and the same thing. And, you know, it sounded great. And, um, you know, so, but, you know, it's run now. It's you know, it's a big corporate thing. Yeah, AG thing, yeah. 
It wow. definitely doesn't carry the same weight as the 40 watt, like in the sense of history, you know, even the B-52s, I think, wasn't their first or second show at the theater, didn't they? Somewhere in there, I think. They, they played, yeah, they played one show at the theater Yeah. with, with the fabulous Phyllis opening. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and that was sort of their last hurrah show in Athens. And then boom, they went to New York. That totally. was like their farewell show. So, so back in your day, was every band like dying to get into theater? Because kind of now, that's kind of how it is. That's like when you prove you can sell tickets at 40 watt, it's like, oh, we can finally play the theater. The, you know, somebody outside of whoever ran the theater at the time, uh-huh. um, they weren't, they were promoting like hillbilly bands. Really? And so somebody promoted that show at the theater for the B-52s. Somebody, some outside promoter rented the theater uh-huh. and and put the show on. Gotcha. And you know maybe it was an Atlanta promoter or somebody mm-hmm. like that. I you know but but they wouldn't the the Georgia Theater would not book you know somebody like the B fifty twos. Gotcha. And when we came along, um, Kyle from the Uptown Lounge was handling it and uh-huh. booking it. And so um, there was like the Uptown Lounge was sort of the competitor to the 40 watt. Really? Uh, and, um, but we had become, you know, our audience had grown, you know, so that it just wasn't comfortable for them to, you know, be in one of those clubs. Gotcha. And so we would play the Georgia Theater and, um, until the 40 watt finally moved into they move into that space there's so many it's hard to decipher sometimes because i don't i honestly don't remember us playing any of the themes from venus stuff at that 40 watt that i I remember us playing at the georgia theater Uh the themes from venus stuff where was Inside Out filmed at? That'd be 40 Watt Uptown. That was Uptown. And that uptown. was 1988. Eight? It was filmed. Gotcha. Was that like a big deal for you guys then? Was that really cool that somebody was making this cool documentary about the scene? Or was it like, nah, we're just playing? Just playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the song playing. from that one too. It's great. Thanks. I mean, you know, we, we were on tour and yeah. we were, we were either just about to record, um, this ain't no outer spaceship. Uh-huh. We just signed to big time RCA and, um, you know, we were kind of road jaded. So, mm-hmm. you know, people wanted to do that. I kind of felt like Athens, Georgia inside out was, they'd come a little bit too late. Gotcha. Yeah. So they missed a little bit of it. Yeah. I think they came a little, you know, it's like if someone had wanted to make that movie, you know, they should have come three years earlier. Ah, gotcha. I see what you mean. And um, uh, so, you know, it, and, and the movie itself is to me, I think there's a, a famous movie called Vernon. Is it Vernon, Florida? Mm-hmm. Um, that they, I think they were originally really coming not to document the scene, but to sort of make fun of it. That how hillbilly mm-hmm. it was. And, they came to Athens. Yeah, uh-huh. 
And, and but then it became uh, then they realized what what it could be with Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, um, and you know with REM's participation, especially REM wasn't going to participate in something that was you know going to be garbage. Of course. Um, 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 thank you. Know, thank you, REM. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and. Uh, but, you know, we just, I, I, you know, I remember the time, you know, for us, it just wasn't any big deal for us. Yeah. Because we were already, you know, doing interviews on MTV and, um, you know, doing the cutting edge and doing shows on MTV and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And we were playing like, you know, MTV Spring Break. Really? No, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, so. Rock goes to college. Yeah, you know, they would have it like a Daytona or someplace on the, you know, Florida. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, we would do those shows and those would be televised. And um, so, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal for us, except, you know, you know, we just, you know, whatever songs we played, we want to make sure that they were the right songs. And, and, you know, we picked, you know, what we picked, we picked. And um, in fact, there was even a, a film that was done earlier on Pylon uh, stopped playing in 1982 and it was their last show. And there was a club called the Mad Hatter, which was oh. down in the warehouse district, which has now been destroyed, yeah. um, which was on Foundry Street. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and um, it was a huge warehouse and Pylon played their last show. Of course, they got back together. Um, <laughs> um, and we opened the show because it was sort of like the passing of the torch. And it was like, you know, gotcha. you know, because Michael and Curtis, I guess, you know, we're all housemates at the time. But um, we, we were terrible that night. And the Agar brothers filmed it. Uh -huh. um, as sort of a potential, like, they realized that, you know, there's something happening in Athens and might as well start documenting all these bands. Absolutely. And, um, so they had already done that. And um, lucky for us, unlucky for them, um, not much happened with it. Because we, for some reason, just it was one of those nights where you're just off yeah I know. you're a musician so you totally know. i know exactly and, you know we were just oh, completely off until <laughs> like peter and mike um peter buck and mike mm -hmm. jumped up for the encore and we you know did like zz top covers on the encore really we just like, <laughs> it at that point we were just uh -huh. like you know let's have fun and um which we would all do. We had this thing called Wheel of Cheese, which was anyone from one of the bands could, we would book a Wheel of Cheese show. And that meant anyone from any one of the bands could show up and play as long as there wasn't a practice and they didn't already know the song. So, that, <laughs> so you know, it was like, what are we going to play? Okay, well, let's try to play this. And, you know, like to serve with love or you know name some or some corny song from the yeah. time and you know jump 
by like Van Halen. Uh. <laughs> you know, and like totally trash it out. Um, yeah. That's interesting, man. I, I, I'd read something. I, I want to see what you thought about this. Maybe maybe it's not true because I only read it one place that like at one point in time, REM was catching some flack because in the at the beginning of their kind of era, they were doing a ton of covers, right? Is this true at all? Well, no, they were smart um, uh-huh. because when they, they we all started at the same time, but they hadn't really written a book of um, original songs yet. They had a few. Mm-hmm. And they had, you know, Michael as the front man. So they could go out and do covers that were really like, you know, Gloria yeah. and even Elvis stuff yeah. and knock it out of the park and throw in as. Th- so each show they would do was, it might be like, let's say the first time at a club, it was like, all covers and maybe two originals. Then the next time it would be, you know, five originals and mm. five covers. Then the next time it would be seven originals and yes. you know, three covers. So, and so that's what they, you know, would do just to fill it in. So they were playing and practicing and, and um, really learning how to perform together as a band. Seems very and, smart and kind of builds the audience sort of. And it built the audience. It built the audience, and it was really smart on their part. I wonder if, if it was Bill's idea, um, but um, um, but it did. It built an audience, and it built an audience that accepted them immediately um, because the songs were known songs, yes. but they were rock classics. Gotcha. And, and Michael was a whirling dervish so dynamic on stage and yeah a lot of people try to rag them and say oh they just came out like as a cover band it's like no 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 no. they were learning how to be a band yes that's a good answer for that i like that uh, and what, what was the bill uh, uh, bill's in love tractor for a little while right or is he just sitting in on the drums what was it like to have him behind the kit for you guys he was a great, Bill was great. Bill was around while we were writing our first album and Kit was, Kit Schwartz was drumming. He lived in the same house at Pylon Park with me. And he also was in a band called The Side Effects. And he was very much into finishing college and going to work for CNN. CNN had just started up. And, um, and so he'd be like, I can't do this. I've, it's, I've got too much work. And then we played one night and we played like with like this little drum machine that went bump, pshim, bump, bump, pshim. and Bill was like, uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so Bill joined the band uh-huh. and, um, and was playing in both bands. Something that's really common now. Uh-huh. Totally. Uh, Especially and, for a drummer. And, but not, it was not common then. Mm-hmm. And, Bill, at a certain point, Bill came to us and said, do you want to make quit school and make a go of this? Um, because the time is right and it's right now. And I said, no. Really? Okay. Because I was in graphic design and I put a ton of work in and I had like another quarter or another, you know, two quarter it was still in the quarter system then yes 
which was three months, you know, to go. And I had to finish it. And then he went to, to Michael and Peter and, and, and said, you know, pose the same question. Oh, okay. And they said, let's do it. Interesting. And, you know, that's Bill. And that's Bill, who is, you know, really smart. And, and he kind of, he was really tied into the music business because he worked, it wasn't Capricorn Records. He worked for um, the booking agency arm of IRS, mm-hmm. which was FBI, or it was the booking agency arm of Capricorn Records in Macon, and um, like as a summer job. And really, kind of, Bill's a really, really smart guy, and um, and a really great songwriter yeah. to boot, which nobody knows, you know. Yeah. Because all the songs are, are say REM, yeah, and, cool. uh-huh. and you know, but everyone would come in with their songs, and Bill, you know, Bill wrote great songs, uh-huh. and um, um, so he really, he really had a sense of timing, and he really knew how to crack the whip. And he still cracks the whip. Like we go to Athens and rehearse at his house. (laughs) You know, he'll always want to come and play on a song or something like that. And it's like, you know, I I, I showed up one day to, and we were going to work on a certain song. And he, you know, it was the old Bill where he, you know, I mean, I love him. He's like a brother to me. Um, But he was like, why do you haven't rehearsed a song? You, you 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 haven't learned it? Because I, I hadn't had time, I, you know, I've been to, you know, work with New York and whatnot. And, yeah. and I just hadn't sat down and like relearned a song. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> there was Bill being the, you know, whip cracker like he was. Yeah. And which I think he really was for REM too, until um, their management came along and uh-huh. really took over and did a really good job. And, you know, um, and, you know, uh, same with the B-52s. I mean, the B-52s had a really bad, horrible experience with management mm-hmm. um, when they first started. Um, a guy named Gary Kerr first was managing them and really fucked them. Mm-hmm. And, um, then they switched management to, and I'm trying to think of the name of the company, Great guys, great management company, um, who gave them the push and the space to go and write Cosmic Thing, the record that they that took them into the stratosphere. Absolutely, you know, we, you know, and we were on the tour. We we're along for the ride for that whole record yeah. with them, and. You know, we started out playing these small venues and all of a sudden, like the record took off and all the venues changed, you know, really? became arenas. Ooh. And it was so great just to see them, you know, because they'd gone through this horrible, you know, Ricky had died mm-hmm. and it was just so hor- horribly tragic, his death. And, you know, we never thought, we were all wondering if, you know, they could pull it together and, do it again yeah and something ricky was come channel or keith was channeling ricky mm-hmm. and and sat down and wrote that album and yeah and you know just 
knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. and it was amazing you know bigger bigger success than anyone had ever expected for that record for them you guys were lucky enough to be on the same tour that year right it was fun it was 60 fun. dates is that what you said yeah it was, it was fun, fun man. gosh it was, a, it was a lot of fun it's especially fun because it's you know you're with your friends yeah yeah the, that makes it so much better and you know and you know fred i remember fred saying one night we were doing it we, he said why didn't you play beat up boots last night <laughs> and he, pretty good said, oh, we, you know we wanted to switch up the set and he goes i've had to play Rock lobster for the past 12 <laughs> years every show you can play beetle boots <laughs> he's got a good point <laughs> you know i mean so you know you get that sort of, that's the way it was with everybody yeah. you know, everyone really wanted everyone else's success yeah. and that sort of advice and you know like guys why are you why aren't you doing this yeah or you know do some more you need to be doing more dates or you need to switch up your set or you know and it's not like that everywhere. You hear about like LA, like eighties, you know, glam eighties is like, fuck this. I'm going to be the biggest band. You know what I mean? And to Athens is the complete opposite of that. Y'all are helping each other out, man. Everyone's helping everyone out. Everyone That's the way to do it. Was, it was very different because mm-hmm. nobody was in it to be rock stars. Yes. You guys were all making statements kind of. We or, were. You know, um, not what you wanted to put out. And we were, we all did what we wanted to do. And, um, you know, obviously REM was the most successful, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, but they were successful by their, by doing exactly what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Not by what a record company wanted them to do. I mean, okay. I think there might've been a moment like, you know, shiny, happy people or something where, you know, a little bit of pressure from Warner Brothers, but, you know, they, you know, they pulled themselves back quickly from that. Yeah. And the same with the B-52s. It was like, they did it on their own terms. Everyone, you know, and it was really important for everyone to do that. It was, you know, it was, you know, yo, respect, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, Free cred. Is <laughs> really important and um you know we kept seeing all these other sort of athens bands coming around and you know trying to jump on everyone's coattails and be successful and it's like be artistically successful yeah that first successful artistically successful successful. yes make your own music yeah you know and maybe you'll be successful commercially from that. Maybe, maybe not, but, you know, get the pleasure out of being successful from, you know, making your own work. So well put, man. Is that the kind of, I guess the advice you'd give for Athens bands or just bands in general these days is like, just make your artistic statement first and worry about the rest of it later. Do your own thing. Love that, man. Well, I think you guys, you guys really did a good job. You've kind of instilled that here. And I, I'm, I've had probably 40 bands on the show and it's, it's kind of still like that, man. Everybody's still like, man, I love this band. I love that band. They're killing it. They're killing it. Everybody wants everybody to succeed here, man. So I appreciate y'all building the scene here for real. We're still enjoying it. Thanks. We're still soaking it in. And I appreciate you giving me two hours of your time, man. I think we're about to wrap it up if that's cool. 
That's totally cool. I have a few. I have like one or two more little things I just want to know before we go, though. Yeah. Uh, this is just me curious. Do you have a favorite Love Tractor album? Is it hard to pick? It's hard to pick. Yeah. It's really, it's hard to pick. I do love themes from Venus. Me too, man. That's a good one. I do love themes from Venus. It sounds so great front to back, man. You should be proud yeah. of it. You have a yeah. favorite REM record? Automatic for the people. Ooh, nice. Okay. Hey, why is that? Any reason? It just resonates? It's a fucking gorgeous album. <laughs> yeah. They hit their stride for sure. It was, to me, it's the apex. It's yeah. just, yeah. and it's an album that they didn't have any intention of writing, I don't think. And it uh-huh. just, and it's so out of its time. Yeah. It's like not what anyone was doing then. I mean, you know, you think it was like, that was like Pearl Jam and fucking Nirvana and everyone was going and there's automatic for the people. And it's just. Here's everybody hurts, you know, it's way different. Me. It just slays me. It's such a good record. <laughs> and the and production Murmur. is amazing. And, the, and Murmur and Chronic, you know, no one listens to Chronic Town, their first EP. Huh? Chronic yeah. Town. Yes, is that one with um? Gosh, uh, wolves lower. Yeah, is it, um, still, is uh, a pretty persuasion on there? Yeah, yeah, I like that one a lot. I like Green. I'm, I'm a big Green fan. I feel yeah. like Green doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion. But, I like. You know, there was a record they did in the '90s called Reveal that didn't get. You know, we were uh-huh. in the studio remixing our first album, and Mike Mills stopped by, and I was. You know, we were talking about our careers and stuff. I said, I said, I totally dug Reveal, which came out at the same time in 2001 that we put out um, The Sky at Night. Mm-hmm. And it kind of had the same vibe, oddly. And, and I really wasn't listening at that time to much current music. Um, I was really off listening to really like weird shit like you know <laughs> 6th 17th century neapolitan music i mean i was like <laughs> way out <laughs> in another zone and i you know I, I think that album reveal is really great yeah and no Actually, one ever paid any attention you know the b52 second album is absolutely fucking genius yeah. as is their first album um, you know, to listen to if go and listen to Ricky Wilson's guitar playing on it, and mm-hmm. you under you have to understand there are no overdubs on it, that Not he's playing lead and rhythm guitar at the same time. That's wild, you know. And you know, to have ever seen Pylon in their heyday live, mm-hmm. uh, with Curtis on drums and Michael, it you know. Hair, I mean, literally like the roof caving in in a house or in a club, you know, it's just amazing. Just amazing. Love to hear you know, it. You know, I really feel, feel lucky, you know, yeah. that I got to see all of that and yeah. all those people. And, you know, they're they're all sweethearts. And if you'd have been five or six years later, you might have missed it all, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was luck. It was luck. Yeah. Well, I love it, man. I thank you so much for coming on, dude. I enjoyed the hell out of this. This was a good time. Yeah, dude. It was a pleasure to meet you over this. I'll try to keep you updated on all the Athens bands now. I got a got a ton of podcasts. You should check them out. Uh 
you can see, you know, I'm, ta- I'm trying to talk to all the bands these days, trying to catch the stories. Cause uh, one thing about you guys kind of decade that, well, because it wasn't a thing, you know, there are no long form conversations with love tractor and REM, you know what I mean? Like there's no two hour REM podcast in 83, you know, cause I would love to hear that. I'd love to hear the love tractor one too, but now I'm trying to kind of catalog that for our generation. Yeah, you know, there'd probably be more, you know, the guys that did Athens, Georgia, Inside Out. I remember, mm-hmm. I think Mills and I had been out partying the night before, and we went to some park where they interviewed us, and then they interviewed Mills. Mm-hmm. And Mills and I driving over there together, and we're like, oh, man, I don't feel good. <laughs> Shouldn't be saying this, you feel be pissed at me, but, um, um, but you know, the, the I think they captured a lot more um, um, audio and interview questions than, than you know, was put out in the film. Totally. So maybe maybe some, somewhere. Maybe somebody will do a different cut of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. I, mean, I always thought the movie, that movie could have been edited better. So yeah. Have you ever listened to, this is just one other thing. Have you ever listened to, um, it's on YouTube. It's like an REM soundboard recording at Tyrone's. Have you ever heard this? You're probably there, man. I was probably there. I was sure I was That's there. like my go-to Athens listen is the Tyrone's on YouTube because I just think it's cool, man. They sound great. Probably mixed by Mike Hobbs mm-hmm. um, or Pat the Wiz. Um, there are a bunch of those tapes floating around. Uh-huh. Um, there's a guy in Athens, um, Pat the Wiz. Uh-huh. who did everybody's sound, either Mike uh-huh. Hobbs or Pat, and they have board tapes from all really? the shows. I would love to hear those. You guys ever thought thought about doing a live record? Love Tractor Live? I'm sure there's some great clips out there, man. Gotta be. Really, we just got, we used to play, there's a really famous radio station in Santa Monica, California, called um, KCRW. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a hundred thousand watt station, which means it blankets Southern California and Arizona. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there was a really famous DJ named Deirdre, I think O'Connell was her last name. And she unfortunately just recently died. And, and so they're trying to get, so we played live on that station twice gotcha. on her show. It was called Snap. And they just came to us and said, can we put this out on a blog so other people can hear this? Because, you know, rights issues. And we were like, oh, yes, please. And I'd listen yeah. to it. And I was like, oh, my God, we were so good. Huh. And um, so to me, that's sort of like the live record. Yeah. Uh, live, but sort of live in a radio studio. But um other people have live recordings of us, but the, like, you know, we, there's a live, that live recording we did with Pylon. I would never want that to see the light of the day. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Everybody know? has those nights. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe we will do a show and record it live. Yeah. You know? But maybe I'm sure people can. would want something from back in the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm excited for the 40 watt shows coming up there in March, correct? March 18th and 19th, yeah. March 18th and 19th. And what, how's the set list choices for that going? You guys just kind of free-balling it or new material mainly? Well, uh, it, we're, we'll be playing 
you know, the first album was re-released and then COVID hit. So we never supported mm-hmm. that. So we'll play gotcha. that album, which is 30 minutes in length. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then we'll play a selection of stuff from themes from Venus, you know, all the hits. Um, huh. And then we'll play um, a selection of stuff from the St. No Outer Spaceship. It'll be a selection throughout. Um but it'll be heavy on those on the first album and the and third. Um, I mean, you'll be hearing "Broke My Saw." And <laughs> of course, of course, the long version, right? <laughs> Maybe we haven't talked about that yet. Yeah, let's get the we full might, version in there, man. <laughs> yeah, we might get the full version in there. I'll have to learn that part. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it'll be a mix of stuff and. Um, uh, and you know, Mike, of course, wants to play some new material, but uh, I don't know. TBD. Yeah, TBD. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. It's so great to meet you. I had a blast, man. Yeah, thank you so much, Jameson. All right, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll be in touch. All right. Okay. Take care. You thank too. You. Bye. See you at the show. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> Got me wanna get me